0: Welcome to My Marvellous Melbourne, a podcast on Melbourne's history with Professor Andy May and the Melbourne History Workshop.
1: We kick off this episode with a new segment, Dear Diary, in which we feature Melburnians who've kept a regular and personal record of events in their lives. They can tell us something about life in the city and the nature of historical change. Richard Gillespie will delve into the diary of Edward White, the man of space and time. Alex Rykinski will continue our On the Beat series with the story of a murder in the Eastern Market. And I'll go looking for Melbourne writer Gene Field.
2: It is January 1853. The ship Tri sails through Port Phillip Heads on its way to Melbourne after a three-month journey from Bristol. As the ship makes its way into Port Phillip Bay, an intrepid immigrant has the best view. Dared by the crew, passenger Edward White, just turned 21, is inching his way along the rope leading between the two masts near the topmost sail. It was a grand entrance to the settlement that would be his home for most of the next 60 years. White noted that evening in his diary that the escapade tired me very much and caused the captain to censure the mate for daring me to do it. This entry is just one of thousands of entries in Edward White's diary, which he commenced on his 19th birthday in 1850 and maintained until his death in 1913. Each daily entry is brief, about 60 words or thereabouts, occasionally more, often less. The small notebook-sized volumes remain with the descendant but a typescript in nine bound volumes can be read at the State Library of Victoria. At one level, the diaries are the detailed account of one man's life in Melbourne, charting the daily events that cumulatively build a picture of his career, family life and social milieu. But they are also more than that, for Edward White's career was dedicated to charting the stars, calculating Melbourne's precise location on the earth and linking Melbourne time to that of the rest of the world. He, more than any other single immigrant, was the observer who would fix Melbourne in space and time. As commentators at the time noted, the Victorian gold rush has attracted an extraordinary number of educated and skilled immigrants. While the prospect of finding gold may have been the catalyst, they had skills and trades they could fall back on should their digging go unrewarded. White fits this mould... When he commenced his diary at 19, he was working as a mechanic and marine engineer in Bristol. His evenings and weekends were dedicated to a self-education programme. The diary was clearly intended to mark his progress. White would read the newspapers and journals and borough books, Humboldt's Views of Nature, Lardner's History of Discoveries, Dempsey on Drainage, Herschel's Astronomy, Novels by Dickens, Textbooks of Algebra, French and Latin he bought a telescope and navigator's quadrant, made observations from his garden and prepared a chart of the orbits of the planets. By mid-1852, he was reading Chamber's Guide to Australia, building a wooden travelling chest and buying a pick, shovel and lantern to take to Port Phillip. Characteristically, the voyage on the ship to Australia became an exercise in practical navigation. White made astronomical observations each day, then used these to calculate the latitude and longitude of the ship. The ship's captain would have been using a chronometer to establish the ship's longitude, but White used the earlier lunar tables method. He first observed the position of the moon against background stars and made complex mathematical calculations in order to determine the ship's position on the Earth's surface. This was an intellectual exercise that would set the course of his future career. Arriving in Melbourne, White pitched a tent in Canvas Town, the makeshift settlement for new arrivals in South Melbourne. Discouraged by reports of the slim pickings on the goldfields, he found work in a store in Flinders Street. Sundays were spent in the tent doing mathematical problems. One evening, he returned to his tent to find everything stolen. For the next five years, White led an unsettled existence, enjoying the freedom of changing jobs every few months. For a time, he tried his hand as a gold miner with poor returns. But found better work as a mechanic, tending the steam engines being employed to crush the ore in the larger mines at Bendigo. Throughout it all, he found time to continue his education in mathematics and astronomy. He even took a week off so that he could come to Melbourne to read astronomy books at the university and public library. Comets and meteors have traditionally been seen as foretelling significant events. Certainly it was a comet that transformed Edward White's life. The Great Comet of 1858 was one of the brightest and most beautiful comets of the 19th century. Observable over the course of several months, it prompted public interest around the world. White's diary notes that he systematically observed the comet for over a fortnight from the dark skies of Bendigo, then spent an entire Sunday analysing his data. That evening he wrote a letter to the Melbourne newspaper, The Argus. His letter was published the following weekend. Later that week two soldiers appeared on the goldfields asking for White. Redcoats on the goldfields could only mean trouble. Friends advised him to hide. Brushing off their concerns, White introduced himself to the soldiers, who handed him a letter from the government astronomer in Melbourne, Robert Allery, who asked White to visit him and indicated a job may be on offer. Years later reviewing his diaries, White underlined the day's entry in red for it marked the beginning of his long career as Chief Assistant Astronomer at Melbourne Observatory in the domain, now part of the Royal Botanic Gardens. The diary charts White's work at the observatory day by day. Given the mixture of nighttime observations, daytime work in the office and other government responsibilities, each entry is an amalgam of work and leisure throughout the day. White had one of two astronomers' residences adjacent to the observatory and close to St Kilda Road. I find the rhythm and poetry of the entries entrancing. 18th of June, 1864, Saturday. Weather fair, rain at night. Rose at seven, worked in the garden, went to the observatory, entered some transits. In the afternoon made some fixings for the fowl house. At six went to the observatory, observed some stars, left at eight, came home, read some of Cole's gardening in Victoria, went to bed at 11.15. 14th of May, 1873, weather fine, rose at 5.50, went to the observatory, observed some transits, came home, read the Argus, went to the observatory, entered some transits, at 11.30 went to Melbourne to Fraser's, bought a pair of vases for £2.15, shillings. returned, entered some transits and conversed with Mr. Todd. This was Charles Todd, the visiting South Australian astronomer and superintendent of the Overland Telegraph. Observed a few transits, went with Mr. Todd to the Theatre Royal, saw Pygmalion and Galatea, left at 10.05, accompanied Mr. Todd to the station, came to the observatory, observed some transits, left at 11.50, came home to bed at 12.20. Numbers mattered to White. Much depended on the accuracy of his astronomical observations. The precise measurement of stars as they touched the crosshairs in the observatory's large transit telescope was recorded against an astronomical clock. Then each observation had to be adjusted for disturbances, such as the refraction of the Earth's atmosphere and the tiny perturbations in the Earth's movement around the Sun. From these, White could progressively build a catalogue of thousands of stars, the Melbourne catalogues published every ten years were celebrated internationally as the most accurate charts of the southern skies. White was made a Fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society in London for his achievement. But these painstaking observations had a more practical aspect. They determined the latitude and longitude of Melbourne, which in turn were used as the basis for an accurate geodetic survey of Victoria, fixing the precise locations of survey markers across the colony From these, government and private surveyors could divide up the colony for the gazetting of crown land, awarding of pastoral leases, creation of Aboriginal reserves, and the sale of private land. There is a disturbing act of dispossession hiding behind these seemingly innocent columns of numbers. Melbourne and the colony lived its days and nights by White's time. Observatory time was transmitted by dedicated telegraph lines from the observatory to public clocks at the post office, town hall and railway stations, into to every station throughout the colony. As telegraphic connections were made with other colonies and countries, local time and longitude could be mapped ever more accurately. From 1883 Melbourne was linked through Darwin and India to an international grid. Of space and time. Not that White's diary is solely confined to measurement. His courtship with Kate Lost is recorded, his marriage, then the births of his eight daughters and one son, their illnesses and achievements. Nighttime observations of stars are interspersed with social evenings, games of whist, songs around the piano, visits to the theatre, meetings of the Royal Society and Alfred Hospital Board, repeated visits to the international exhibitions and attendance at garden parties at Government House, next door to the observatory. But all the same, there is a wonderful obsession with numbers and stars. White liked to take long walks on Sundays, timing each mile with his watch, as he passed the mileposts from Melbourne to Doncaster. On holiday with family at Sorrento, he took barometric observations as he climbed nearby hills. For 25 years, he wrote the monthly Astronomical Notes for the Australasian Journal. One daughter was named Estella as her birth coincided with a comet. Edward White had a heart attack in January 1913, aged 81. His last diary entry was at the end of April and he died three months later at his home adjacent to the observatory. White's house was demolished in the 1920s in order to build the Shrine of Remembrance. Appropriately, White's astronomical observations formed the basis of the calculations to design an aperture in the roof of the shrine in such a way that a ray of light would fall on the stone of remembrance at exactly 11 a.m. on the 11th of November each year. The observer of space and time left his mark on Melbourne.
3: shots. They reverberate through the upper story of Melbourne's eastern market. At a stall marked with icons of suns and stars and a head in profile, the air quivers with adrenaline. A man aged in his 40s lies motionless on the ground, blood from bullet and stab wounds seeping into his linen shirt and necktie. It is April 1899, an autumnal afternoon in one of Melbourne's beloved amusement spaces, home to florists, fruit sellers, cycloramas, bird fanciers, photography studios and shilling mystics, gatekeepers of divination and character reading. The phrenologist Emery Gordon-Mador has just fired his revolver into Frank Cartwright, aka Frank Stevens, actor and owner of the cyclorama and his phrenologist wife, Annie Cartwright, professional name, Zinger Lee. The crime shocks Australia. Newspapers from the Clarence River to Kalgoorlie cry murder in the Eastern Market. Phrenologist runs amok. The case hits all of the high notes of late Victorian Gothic. As with most murders, of course, we must scrabble in earlier times for motive. Emery Gordamador was a phrenologist, a practitioner of the science of reading character and intellect from the shape of the head. Phrenology cascaded through public life in Australia from the early 19th century until well into the 20th. The cranial science served as a frequent pastime of middle-class folk, including doctors and social reformers, but its itinerant popular lecturers and character readers scraped by in the margins of society. They shifted identities and forged unholy combinations of phrenology with other forms of divination. Various records suggest that Mador was born in the 1840s, in either New South Wales or South Australia. Although none of this is terribly reliable, and Mador was probably a stage name. This man shambled into regional Victoria in the 1880s, lecturing on phrenology and offering private consultations filled with life advice. He married, had children, abandoned them. Mador settled in Melbourne in 1890 and the eastern market drew him into its colonnaded embrace. Originally a hay, corn and fresh produce market, the square bounded by today's exhibition, Little Collins, Burke, and Russell Streets, word from morning until night. The new market buildings, completed in 1878 during the Age of Exhibition, rose up in neoclassical splendour. During the day, sunlight poured through the market's vaulted glass ceilings onto two levels of stalls and a fountain at the market's heart. At night, electricity bathed Saturday night hordes, respectable folk, as well as clusters of larrikins. It was a village of leisure within a city. For a decade, Mador trod the short path from his lodging house in Little Burke Street to the south side of the Eastern Market, his frock coat perhaps flapping in the breeze, tall silk hat bobbing above the heads of passers-by. He was tall for the time, well-fed, with a hook nose. He read palms, heads and the stars from a stall divided into two rooms by a curtain of coarse red fabric. When not in his inner sanctum, he perched out the front of his stall, expounding his theories of the universe. Mador believed himself a cut above other fortune tellers. He was not an astrologer but what he called a sidereal scientist – a man of ancient wisdom who had supposedly predicted the London fires. Like many other phrenologists who fussed over the legitimacy of their profession, even as they bundled it with thoroughly disreputable practices, he scoffed at the so-called impostors and quacks who told fortunes under the cloak of phrenology. He meant specifically the tenants next door, Frank and Annie Cartwright, who also peddled phrenology and physiognomy, as well as charging admission to a great panorama. Medor blamed his competitors for a slump in business. He thought Annie Carter had scared away customers by lolling about outside in her ornate costume. It was a perceived loss, aggravated by the practical jokes played by his neighbours. With a small gang of acquaintances they began to make sport of the resident eccentric. He detailed the injustices. A cross marked on his stall door, a stolen shutter, verbal abuse in the street. His tormentors set ragged boys with mangy dogs running through the stall. One night, on Mador's walk home, a man asked for matches and then grabbed him by the throat. He began carrying a revolver, Mador's neighbors failed to see what a country journalist had long ago perceived, that this was one of the few men one would hesitate to play practical jokes upon. Mador drank. In the late 1890s, he saw a Dr Sterling for iritis or eye redness, the complication of syphilis, a disease known for unsettling the brain. I came to the conclusion that he was a shingle short on the border between sanity and insanity, said the Doctor. Perhaps some of the supposed persecutions were untrue or unconnected to the Cartwrights. Perhaps Mador misinterpreted their spirit. By April of 1899, the City Council, which was trying to clean up the market, had a gutful of this monde of character readers and their grubby disputes. Fortune-telling was illegal under vagrancy laws, seen as obtaining money under the false pretenses of being able to predict the future. The town clerk issued a notice to be circulated to tenant fortune-tellers, warning that if they didn't discontinue this practice, they would have to vacate by May. The notice was due for posting at the time of the murder. In the week before the crime, Mador went on a bender... Returning to work at the end of this bout, he found a sign on his door, stating that the shop was closed in consequence of the death of Venus. His blood boiled, blood rapidly draining of alcohol. On the afternoon of the 10th of April, he strode across the market to see a bunch of radishes affixed to his stall door. His tolerance frayed, and he accosted Annie Cartwright, who lounged against the phonograph outside. He aimed for her heart with his revolver but caught her arm instead. She fled, but Frank Cartwright soon ran into the stall. Mador's shots to Cartwright's head and right buttock felled him. And as he lay on the ground, the phrenologist stabbed him through the chest and began working on his neck with a blade. It was then, as Mador commenced decapitation, that Barnett Friedman, the picture frame manufacturer, rushed in to disarm him, a tussle that would cost Friedman an eye. A coronial inquest a week later committed Mador to stand trial for murder, but the process would be delayed and complicated by the question of sanity. Medical men and then jurors could not agree. Was Mador mad? Was being a shingle short sufficient to acquit someone of such a gruesome attack? Madness was deduced from Medore's physical state, his post-bender withdrawal, which one physician from St Vincent's Hospital dubbed an acute alcoholic mania that predisposed him to react to even the slightest irritation. But the court also considered Medore's faith in his own powers. For Dr Stirling, the commerce of mysticism could be excused as long as its practitioners understood that they traded in make-believe.
0: His belief in astrology and demonology influenced me. As he made his living by the practice of astrology, I would expect him to be candid enough to tell me he did not believe in it.
3: After the first trial founded in Deadlock, a second jury in July found the phrenologist not guilty but Mador became a guest of the governor for as long as the state deemed him in need of restraint. He wasn't sent to a mental asylum, though, but to Melbourne jail. From this bluestone capsule, Medore wrote missives to a publican friend, asking for help in seeking a remission of incarceration. These letters reveal a grandiose sense of self, a failure to grasp the gravity of his actions.
0: It is a terrible thing to me to have to remain in this place among so many brutes in human form whose conversation is the abomination of abominations. I could not believe that man is so vile and fallen if I did not hear him at his worst as he is in this marvellous Melbourne.
3: Mador suspected a conspiracy.
0: There is more at the bottom of this unfortunate affair than appears on the surface. The quack palmists and phrenologists are not those only who are interested in my detention.
3: Meanwhile, Annie Cartwright recovered from her gunshot wounds and, like any good phrenologist in a fix, took to the road, working under her stage name of Zinga Lee. Mador spent most of the next decade in Melbourne Jail before a transfer to the Bendigo Jail in 1908. In August of that year, a deputation of friends and fellow storekeepers visited Attorney General John Davies, pleading for his release. Davies rebuffed them. He said that seven doctors had assessed Mador over the past decade and declared him a danger to the community if appropriate precautions weren't taken. But the governor and the medical officer at Mador's new home in Bendigo kept him under close watch. By May 1909, they deemed him mentally fit, and he stepped out through the gates of Bendigo Jail, an elderly man released into the care and supervision of friends. Who knows if Mador's sanity improved? How does one measure madness? Had he renounced the reading of fortunes? Was his fitful violence banished with his former drunken self? Perhaps the jail's governor and doctor both thought him too harmless to worry about, sane or not. Regardless, the blood had dried on the case and maybe Mador won them over with a touch of eastern market magic, a conjuring trick in which reality could be moulded at will to recreate the past as you think it should be.
1: Is that thing that inspires people to write about a particular place, to put their musings on the page? Newcomers compare the towns they see for the first time to the towns they've known long before. Older residents are passionate and possessive, reminiscing about the olden days, expressing the warmth and depth of their attachment to a locality and its landmarks. Page after page from the early years of Melbourne's settlement are filled with a sense of expectation, an aspiration for the future, with dissonance and delight in equal measure. I was sitting writing a letter the other day and rose to peep through between the blind and window frame to see how the day looked out of doors, when at the same moment a black, horrible-looking face suddenly came into very close proximity to mine, but on the other side of the glass. It was that of an old native woman who, activated by the same curiosity as my own, no doubt wished to see through the same aperture what was inside. That's a curious young man, newly arrived, looking out at Collins Street 175 years ago. I came across that diary in the late 1980s and remember thinking that through that window frame of time I knew as little about the writer as he did of the Aboriginal woman, In the street outside. A few years later, I came across a slim little book called And So Today by Jean F. Field, subtitled A Picturesque Cavalcade of the Years Between. Published in Melbourne in 1956 and dedicated to the women pioneers of the district, And So Today sketched the early histories of Melbourne's eastern suburbs in a little over 50 pages covering Blackburn, Box Hill, Doncaster, Nutterwadding, Mitcham and Vermont. Here, in six short chapters, Jean Field explored the early European occupation of these localities. The hamlets and the stock routes, the blacksmiths and prospectors, the town halls and traders, tracking the past along railway lines and old post and rail fences, through the cemeteries, the quarries and churches, to the landscape of the early post-war decades. Black-and-white photos of the largest lemon-scented gum in Blackburn, apple orchards at Vermont, and an old Wattle and Daub homestead in Doncaster gave a hint of something lost as well as something found. Gene Field's view of metropolitan Melbourne in the mid-1950s staked out a territory of centre and edge, orchard and subdivision, the old and the new, The slum versus the suburb. The blandness of the plains against the promise of the hills. The weariness and disadvantage of the inner city, replaced by the dream of a better and more spacious future.
4: Our great city of Melbourne is like a large star with a solid centre, and many points spreading out north, south, east and west, but the longest point of all thrusts out towards the Blue Dandenong Ranges, an easy afternoon's run in the car from town. The lovely, undulating country of the lower foothills, with its many orchards and small farms, is rich and fertile. Apples and pears, lemons and peaches all grow in abundance. It is to this country that the city weary and the dreamer the artist and the worker alike have turned their eyes and have bought for themselves blocks of land and built on them their dream home. The uncanny way in which the human being turns his eyes to the hills and the latent instinct which sleeps in all of us to come, if we can, closer to nature, is being proved day by day as more and more men and women prefer to strap hang in trains and buses from the hills for as long as an hour rather than live close to the city in flats and apartment houses. Lucky indeed is he who can say to his fellow worker, I come from the hills.
1: The things that impressed the visitor to these districts in the mid-1950s were the perfume of the gums, the sense of peacefulness and the wonderful bird life. Indeed, and so today is not just a celebration of the early settlers, but is marbled, if not with nostalgia or loss, then a certain sense of longing and threat. The paradox of the new suburbs, as Fields saw it, was that the very qualities that made these undulating hills attractive to the inner city dweller were obliterated in the process of suburban development.
4: It is sad to see the orchards going one by one, subdivided into blocks of land, some of them only 50 feet wide, to see men having to leave one congested area only inevitably to live in another. The money-hungry and the grasping are always with us. Closer settlement, the cry, rather than let us breathe. A beautifully timbered block is sold to a man who is uncivilized enough to carry the instinct with him to destroy before he can build, who clears his block of trees overnight and then gloats to his friends that he is now living in the beautiful suburb of, say, Blackburn or Croydon. The man who sees in his gums only six months' free firewood and not the blessing of a lifetime, rather than cut these trees down, he should go down on his bended knees and thank God that he doesn't have to live on the top floor of a 23 story apartment house.
1: Are we to make a desert of this country of ours? she asked. If so, we will be despised and hated by our descendants who will rightly blame us for our lack of thought and perception and sense of duty to those who will come after us. There's quite a spirit that animates this little volume, amid the rapid growth and the tensions of change and the estate agents and spec builders supplying pent-up post-war demand. There's a wonderful eye for the hue and temper of the cultural as well as the natural world, the cliqueiness of Vermont, the Englishness of Doncaster, and Blackburn, the embodiment of everything Australian. There's also a profound sense of the efforts of the individual, her proud pioneer, in the face of the larger forces of history, of planning and change. And it's a book with its boots in the places themselves, an early oral history, as it were, as Jean Field sat down with the non who could remember the very early days of white settlement, her informants, the Livermores and Two Goods, the Tearleys and Zerbers, old orchardist families and other long-standing locals who claimed a kind of primordial right of ownership over the spirit of these places. You could understand why they felt that their way of life was imperiled. Melman's population nearly doubled between 1947 and 1971, with the addition of one and a quarter million people the highest inter growth occurring in the period Genefield was writing. In the immediate post-war years, the old industrial suburbs of the Inner Core – Brunswick, Collingwood, Fitzroy, Richmond, Port and South Melbourne – had stopped growing in population. Some of the middle-distant suburbs like Hawthorne, Malvern and Paran were actually in population decline. But at its circumference in the east and southeast, the metropolis was growing through the out-migration of young families from the inner suburbs. It would be another generation before these interlopers could themselves be called the new suburban pioneers. Imagine, Jean Field gently prods her reader, imagine as you stand on this regular footpath by this huge highway in this modernising suburb, what it used to be like. We can read what she wrote, words on a page, but I wanted to know more about this intriguing Jean Field who came to write so keenly and poetically about a sweep of Melbourne suburbs. Who was this woman, so eager to ensure that the go-ahead and aggressive instinct for the future should be tempered with what she called historic sentimentality, an understanding of origins, an appreciation of individual effort, an awareness of legacy. Who was this writer who tempered her musings with a sentence from Psalm 121, with snippets of Buddhist philosophy and with smatterings of Rabindranath Tagore? What was the face of this woman on the other side of the glass? I started to look for other clues, reading the book in a different way.
4: There comes a time in everybody's life when we stand still, as it were, and take stock of ourselves and our surroundings. A time when, if we are married, perhaps our children launch themselves onto the tide and leave us, a little perplexed, a little lonely, with an emptiness in our hearts and with time on our hands.
1: Blackburn, she wrote, is the home of the businessman who, although he must be in his office at nine o'clock each day, comes home with a sense of freedom, a sense of burden having been cast off as he steps through the station gates. Was Jean Field feeling a little empty, a little perplexed, in inverse proportion perhaps to the freedoms of her husband and her grown-up children who had now spread their wings? There's something else, of course, that haunts this book, if we read it forwards rather than backwards in time from where we are. It's the war. It's actually even two wars. Jean Field was realist enough to know that the subdivision of her idyllic country was inevitable because, as she wrote, so many sons of farmers and orchardists were either killed in the war, leaving a very heavy burden for the old folk, or because of the war sought employment in the city and elsewhere. Her suburbs are the solace for the troubled souls returned those who have a craving for the wide-open spaces after World War I, where once more a man can be himself in his own garden. The title of the book, And So Today, whether consciously or unconsciously, we can't be sure, mirrors American poet Carl Sandburg's eulogy to the unknown soldier in Washington after World War I. Looking for Jean Field led me to scour online newspapers, electoral rolls and other records for clues. In the 1950s, Jean Florence Field, home duties, and her husband Dudley, a manager, live in Wadding. The couple first appear in Kew in the late 1930s, Vermont immediately after the war, Blackburn in the early 1960s, and later at Sorrento. Dudley Frederick Field was born in 1907 in Mooney Ponds and later lived with his parents in Kew before marrying Jean in 1932. When he enlisted in the Citizens Military Force in 1928, he was working as a salesman at Ball and Welch in Flinders Street. Five foot ten and a half, brown eyes and hair, Protestant, son of R. C. Field of Torrance Street, Canberra a black-and-white mugshot showing Dudley's dark complexion and short painter's brush moustache. There's more about Dudley online, a catalogue entry for an album of federal capital site photographs owned by Dudley with reference to his father, Robert Charles Field, who was steward of the Commonwealth Parliament House refreshment rooms in Melbourne. Robert Field is listed as being a member of the federal city camp on Currajong Hill in 1909, a three-week survey to determine the future site of Canberra. Dudley, it turns out, spent his war as a major in the 22nd Battalion. Hank Nelson interviewed him for the Keith Murdoch Sound Archive project, Australia in the War. Suddenly, surprisingly, I heard Dudley's voice from a room in Sorrento in April 1991. Getting to Rabaul, evading the advancing Japanese, evacuation to Australia, secondment to the RAAF as their chief chemical warfare instructor, and his role as senior member of the Darwin War Crimes Trials.
2: What was your personal reaction to the news that you were going to rebel and what was the reaction of the men?
4: I don't know that there was any great... uh, it's difficult now to sort of say, I mean, the main thing you were going to the war you were you were doing something. there was quite a lot of disappointment that we were not going with the uh, over to the desert to join the, the rest of the boys. That was a very, very strong feeling, and which of course was there all the time.
1: Maybe Jean was in the room that day in nineteen ninety one reliving her husband's war her own years of isolation. But that's definitely Dudley in her book, the man who, with pipe in mouth and dressed in faded army jacket, will potter all the weekend amongst shrub and hothouse and let the rest of the world go by. I don't think Jean begrudged him that. The same day I heard Dudley's voice online, I received a parcel in the post of two of Jean Field's other books that I'd tracked down in second-hand booksellers. If and so today was the celebration of the suburbs, These Joyous Sands, published in 1959, was the city's counterpoint. A history of early European settlement, the Sorrento convict experiment of 1803, the foundation of Melbourne, pioneering on the peninsula, and the early days of drumana Merricks, Mornington and Rosebud. We learn that Dudley had built a holiday house at Sorrento and that Jean's connection to what she called her small paradise could be traced to when, as an eight-year-old girl, she first went to Sorrento, where her father rented, then purchased, a limestone villa, Craigie, facing the front beach. These were the times when annual summer holidays lasted from the middle of December until after Easter, when Jean's mother would ship ahead the summer's provisions, homemade butter packed between layers of salt in an earthenware crock, home-cured bacon and ham, and all the clothes, bedding and cutlery necessary for Jean, her father, sister Doreen, baby brother Robert, governess, maid and dog. The peninsula would steady her sense of self. In the early 1940s, with two young sons of her own and Dudley away at the war, I turned, she later wrote, like a homing pigeon to the scene of the happiest days of my childhood, despite a gnawing loneliness which sometimes seemed as though it would engulf me. The day I first heard Dudley's voice, I saw Jean's handwriting. The second volume in my package was a signed copy of Grey Ribbon to the Border, published in 1973. On the dust jacket, a map of the Hume Highway anticipated the book's subject, an itinerary of the route when it used to run through Kilmore and Seymour, Avenal and Uroa, through Benalla, Wangaratta, and Wodonga to the border. Dudley is acknowledged for typing the manuscript, her father, as a prince of storytellers, who in my youth gave me a lifelong interest in Victorian history. She wanted to excite her reader with yarns and stories as much as with facts and figures starting from one or other of Melbourne's early watering holes, maybe Max Hotel in Franklin Street, stopping first at the Sarah Sands at the gates of Melbourne, then out through Pentridge, Campbellfield and Calcallow, before the road begins to rise in the foothills of the Great Dividing Range. There are further glimpses, too, into the landscape of Jean Fields' imagining, what she felt about why she wrote.
4: To say that this thing, or that that was the dominating factor which led one of us to take a certain step in our lives, would, I think, be wholly wrong. Rather, let us say that a chain of events, dating back to our ancestors, influenced us to become what we are. The events are the milestones along the way, our inherent inclinations, the fingerposts pointing this way or that. Our lives the roadway, running in straight unrelieved lines or twisting and turning uphill and down, leading us to heights unexpected, vistas unimagined or quagmires unpredicted, through veils of shadows and again through sunny patches.
1: So Jean had travelled this road herself, that grey ribbon to the border of the old Route 31, but also the personal road, troubled by shadow as well as warmed by sun. Where, I still wondered, were her fingerposts and inherent inclinations? What ancestors influenced her to become what she became? The book has a few more breadcrumbs on the trail, that she herself, as a child, lived on a property somewhere near this busy highway, on land first taken up by the pastoralist known as Big Clark, who had claimed land at Sunbury in the mid-19th century. A fourth Jean Field book I read in the library, Wagon Wheels Through the Wildflowers, published in 1977, again dedicated to those unsung heroines of the Australian bush, the Pioneer Women. This was a small study of the Grampians region, the Carter family of Glen Isla Station, and the settlement of Hamilton, Horsham and Hall's Gap. And in a footnote on page 19 a reference that finally gave me a solid clue. The diary of my grandfather, William Aidney, describes a visit to Mr Ware's station in the 1840s, where he assisted in the treatment of sheep for scab. With the Aidney surname, Jean Field's ancestry and influences come further into the frame, and newspapers give us further glimpses of her life. Jean Aidney, born at the family mansion Clifton on 16 acres fronting Cotham Road, Kew, in 1908, which stood on the site of the Cotham Private Hospital. By 1912, her father, Stanwell Alfred Aidney, is listed as a farmer on the Melbourne Road on a property called Stanton in Gisborne. Jean got her middle name from her mother, Florence, And when she was a year old, her parents took her to visit Florence's mother, Elizabeth Rose, in Bunbury, Western Australia. Just in time, as the old lady died a year later. The Gisborne Gazette tells us that eight-year-old Jean was elected treasurer of the local Children's Red Cross. And at 19, she visited her uncle in Bunbury, where she wore a smart flame taffeta dress with touches of gold to the local rowing club ball. And what of her grandfather, William Aidney, who perhaps with his young wife Emily Day was the wellspring of her pride in ancestors and her sense of history? Perhaps family stories were passed down to Jean about William and his own philanthropic father, a tailor of Sackville Street in London, who was sub-treasurer of the London Aged Christian Society. William and Emily were married in Hawthorne in 1878 He, just shy of 60, she, not yet 20. In the 1840s, William had taken up a run called Choclin on the eastern side of Lake Colongilac near Camperdown, first with sheep, then cattle after the foot rot set in. A justice of the peace, appointed a board member of the National School at Timboon and erstwhile president of the Camperdown Cricket Club, he eventually retired to the house in Kew, and was later remembered as a good, honest man of a somewhat retiring disposition. But to bring this story of faces and places full circle, it was William Aidney who was that young man who looked through a Collins Street window in 1843 at the Aboriginal face on the other side of the glass. What did he think of the Aborigines? You can read his diary in the State Library of Victoria and it includes accounts of frontier violence around Portland Bay and elsewhere, shepherds killed by Aborigines, the retaliation of our half savagized countrymen who are often guilty of dreadful wrongs, their victims' skulls used as shaving boxes. There are also family stories among some descendants of other diaries burned in which William recorded prominent families poisoning local Aborigines. In her writings, Jean Field treads lightly across the fraught historical frontier, though she sees Indigenous peoples as characters in a vanished past rather than active agents in a vital present. In the 1950s, and so today, notes that Nuttawadding is an Aboriginal name for ceremonial ground, the reader is encouraged to imagine the original beauty of a place scarred by the march of civilisation as she sees it, though there is little of the human cost. By the 1970s, she's less circumspect. Grey Ribbon to the Border recounts the faithful massacre at Benalla in 1838.
4: The terrible retaliation of the white settlers against the Aboriginals does not make a pretty story and some say it should be allowed to sink into oblivion. But here I disagree. Too much has been told of the treatment of the black man towards the white, the spearing and stealing of cattle, etc. While on the other hand, the treatment meted out by white settlers to the Aboriginal has nearly always been soft-peddled.
1: So there we are. There's not much more I can tell you about Jean F. Field, home duties of Kew, Vermont, Blackburn and Sorrento. Suffice to say that a death notice in the Herald Sun recorded her peaceful passing in 2000, beloved mother, mother-in-law, grandmother and great-grandmother. How apt that the funeral service was held at the Nepean Historical Society Museum in Sorrento. I'm sure that other family stories abound, but I've just skimmed the public record for tantalising traces. There's Aidney and Florence Avenues in Kew, where the old Clifton estate used to be. Those four slim volumes that sought to honour past achievements. A few references in newspapers and other records. A few feelers put out to people who vaguely remembered and imaginative, determined tiny, bird-like woman, Granny Aidney's favourite granddaughter. As for the rest, there are just her words on the page.
4: Time carries us on relentless wings, and history links together the past and the present. Tomorrow becomes yesterday in a moment, and what we do today, whether it be good or evil, is irrevocable.
1: Take a minute here to mention a podcast we've been listening to lately by our friends Tamsin Peach and Anna Clark at the Australian Centre for Public History at the University of Technology, Sydney. Glam City goes behind the scenes of Sydney's cultural institutions, the galleries, libraries, archives, and museums, talking to the collectors, curators, writers, and educators who help make public history. Without spoiling anything for you, we particularly love their episode called Made by the Ancestors about the challenge of museums in connecting the objects in their collections to the people and cultures they come from, with insights in this case from Nathan Sentence, who works as a First Nations Cultural Programs Officer at the Australian Museum. The show is a co-production between the Australian Centre for Public History and community radio station 2 FM. Glam City recently explored a bit of Melbourne's history as well, with an episode on the memorialisation of the Westgate Bridge Collapse in 1970. You can listen to that episode and their entire back catalogue. Just subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. And do leave them a review if you've got time.
0: My Marvellous Melbourne is a production of the Melbourne History Workshop in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne, Australia. Our thanks to Gavin Nabar at the Hallwood Recording Studio, University of Melbourne, and Andrew Batterham for our theme music. You can find episode notes, further resources, and contact details at our website, mymarvellousmelbourne.net.au. We'd love to hear from you.